Scribes and Scribblers to the Nip section, the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. I'm Diana Dye, and I'm on Zoom with two of my co-hosts, my regular co-host Sharon. How are you, Sharon? Good, good, good. And joining us from Melbourne is Tom May, who we haven't spoken to, gosh, for about two years now. How are you, Tom? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Um, I'm okay. It's uh, it's good to chat with you. We're here with Tom, um, and we're very excited to have Tom with us because we're going to be talking about something that's quite in uh, your wheelhouse, Tom, and not so much in mine. Um, maybe Sharon somewhere in the middle of the road. Um, So we're going to be talking about filling systems and the extent of my knowledge of filling system is that I know how to refill a cartridge. Well, why did you suggest this topic then, Sharon, if you know nothing about it? So that I can sit down and take notes. (laughs) I actually have some questions. Okay. I'm sure Tom will have the answers. (laughs) No pressure, Tom. I prepared some notes and I prepared some questions, but um, I thought this was a good topic to get us back into like the nitty gritty of stuff because we haven't done one of those episodes in a while. And also because there is so much to talk about um, with filling systems and to learn about, even as an entry point. I think we probably, even Sharon and I, we probably know more than we think we know because we have used a lot of pens, even if we haven't, you know, taken them apart, the developmental history so much, but we do know what we like and we know things about, um, you know, the, the pros and cons of different types of filling systems. So I think we'll have a lot to talk about. And then we have Tom who has actually had experience with, you know, repairing and have you done remodeling of pens in the past, Tom? What do you mean remodeling? I mean, like totally gutting something and just replacing all of its innards. Yeah, outside of two thousands, not really. But hey, that's that's a piston filler, so that's, that that's almost vintage now. Yeah. Ah, oh, certainly some of them are. So yeah. I think I remember you saying um, in your conversation with Mel that basically the design has changed very little from like, is it the 19, is it 1970s yeah. or 1966 yeah, yeah. when it was it's, first introduced it's quite phenomenal all the like really small changes they made uh you can you could argue that every change they've made has been for the better of the pen um but it's remarkable when you open up the piston knob from one from 1967 or 68 or whatever and it is virtually identical to one from 2021 but are the parts replaceable or oh, sorry, interchangeable the part, or not? They are absolutely interchangeable. You can put half of a 1960s piston with half of a 2021 piston and it will work just fine. I wish more brands, in, in some senses, I wish more brands would take their cue and just like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because it's you've got this pen that can last forever <laughs> now. Yeah. <laughs> Mont Blanc. Pelican. <laughs> but Pelican has been fairly consistent, haven't they? That's what Yeah, Pelican's, Pelican's fairly consistent. Mm. Yeah. Okay, um, before we get into it, let's run down what we're writing with today. How about we start with Tom? All right, so um, ironically for a filling system episode, I'm writing with like the only cartridge pen I still own. I'm writing with a modern pen, a Sailor Pro Gear Earth. Yeah, which was gifted me by gifted to me by my uh, good friend Craig. Nice. How about you, Sharon? So I'm writing with the two pens that we just talked about, Alami 2000, uh-huh. which, um, as 
Tom said, get your mitts on that. I'm trying to get this one a little bit glossier because it's partially glossy, partially. Um, so need some more hand cream and a bit more TLC on the Lamy 2000. Um, this is my first one, actually. It was my first one, well, not really. It's, it's my first one in the sense that in spirit it was my first one. The only thing that is original on this now is possibly the nib. Possibly. I can't even recall. <laughs> I've had every single piece of this replaced. So when you had that replaced, did they do that thing where they replace the cap and the body and the filling, the, the turning knob at the same time? So that the- Well, back in the day, I was the one who had to do the repairs for Lamy. And by repairs, it doesn't mean actually doing any type of repairs. I swapped bits and pieces onto a Lamy pen. So uh, what I actually learned with the Lamy 2000 was that uh, I'm not a big fan of I'm not a big fan of piston fillers as a general statement. Um, ironic because I like pelicans, but I don't like piston fillers because I really don't like filling pens by dipping the nib into an ink ink bottle bottle of ink. I know sacrilegious. People come at me with your pitchforks. Really oh, come at it's me. Fundamental, right? I, I, come at me. I don't like inky fingers. This is the thing. I do not you're in like the wrong, inky fingers. You're in the wrong game. So you're the people who mom oh my God, make those already. make those like nib wiping things for like ten dollars a is box me. for. That's you. Well, no. Well, actually, no. It's not even me because I don't get to that stage where I have to wipe down a nib. So I don't. I don't like. I don't like filling from the nib or like the actual filling hole. You know how these pens have like the filling hole here. Anyway. So I prefer cartridges. I prefer cartridge converters. Well, cartridges mostly. I like refilling cartridges. And I really don't like nib creep. I don't like it when ink gets on a grip section. Um, I just don't like getting inky fingers. So the story, the moral of this is when I first got the 2000, I thought, oh, hey, this is a really great pen, but I really hate the fact that when you fill the 2000, you, you always get ink on your fingers yeah. when you fill a 2000 because you of the ink on the body it goes beyond yes, the nib because it's pop well, the whole thing in it goes you get it up to like the silver bit mm-hmm. here and so it's because of the hairline finish there's always like ink residue that stays on the 2000 so i really didn't like that way back when and i've learned to live with it now and the first few days of writing with Alami 2000. I write it with like a piece of tissue around the grip section. I know, I know. Just roast me, guys. You're you're more than welcome to. So when I first started, uh, when I first had Alami 2000, I used to actually unscrew the front section and I used to syringe ink into the piston, which defeats the whole purpose of getting a piston filler and which is why I I prefer cartridge fillers, right? Um, I used to syringe a piston filler because I hated the grip section thing, which is fine. You can do that if you're really finicky. But things that happen when you do that, you lose the little shoulders because, you know, you refill near a sink and then the shoulders drop down the sink. I've done that before. So I had to che- I had to By replace shoulders, the shoulders. Like, like the, the little clip. No, it's there's a little ring in the 2000 which causes the click sound when you cap the 2000. Oh. So it's like two tiny little shoulders, metallic bits. I don't, don't think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So yeah, with the shoulders, um, I lost that because mm. it's captured in when you screw it on. So the shoulders, 
I lost, so I had to get the shoulders replaced. And then when you unscrew, like the Lamy 2000 is not designed to be unscrewed at the front. It's meant to be designed to be. (laughs) It's designed to be unscrewed at the back where the piston is. So when you unscrew too many times, this doesn't join properly. So the more times you unscrew it, the more time, like the harder it is to join it back Mm -hmm. on seamlessly. So you can get cracks. Well, you can get like gaps in that section. So I had a gap which could not be replaced because I kept unscrewing. So instead of filling it the way it's intended to be filled, you just replace the whole pen. So, well, at one point I couldn't actually screw the front back on. So I had to replace the whole pen. And while you can replace the front section, Mm -hmm. it doesn't match. So you have to replace the entire body. So I replaced That's the entire body. And then um, with the actual nib itself, one day, I, I don't know, I had this thing where I was like, oh, I think I have an extra fine, but it's writing really, really broad. So maybe there was an actual like fine nib or medium nib stuck into this pen by accident. So I pulled the nib out, the nib unit out, but it's a very specific fit. And when I was trying to get it back in, I snapped the feet. So I had to get the feet replaced on it. Um, I was lucky that I didn't jam the nib itself. At least I don't remember jamming the nib what itself. What does a Lamy 2000 nib unit look like? Because I don't it's think I've ever seen one. It's a tiny little nib. Well, I'm not going to take this one apart given my previous experience. Um, and then the last thing was I accidentally had this pen upside down for an extended period of time, which meant that ink leaked um, throughout the entire cap and uh, good old iron gall, I uh, did some irreversible damage to the top, like where the actual screw is, where there's like a brass screw in here. Um, did some uh, damage that I couldn't reverse out, so I had the cap replaced. Anyway, so it is in spirit, the soul of this pen is my first ever Lamy 2000 from like 2007, I think. Um, in practice, it is a brand new pen. I feel like Very you have new several pen. of these ship of Perseus pens. You like, including your um, my, and this is my other one. Yeah, so exactly. the other one I'm writing with is my Pelican, which went through basically been replaced. Every single part, ex, uh, well, this one is doesn't even have the original nib on it. So yeah, this entire pen has been replaced. So I'm writing with my Lamy 2000 and Pelican M400 White Tortoise, both of which have been are like a phoenix pens. You know, they've been resurrected, reincarnated. You know, um, every single part has been replaced. Sorry, that was a very long-winded intro, but yeah. okay. Um, I'm I also inked two uh, of my rarely inked pens, rarely inked because they also have filling systems which are a little bit more finicky, and also because this one's leaking for some reason. I don't know why. Um, I have inked my uh, Pen BBS four five six, which is their. Um, vacuum filler, their plunge, plunger vacuum filler. Um, it's a very inexpensive vacuum filler, but it's quite well made, except for the fact that their nibs are very, um, very uneven. Some of them are okay and some of them are just complete garbage. Um, I've replaced the nib with a Franklin Christophe. I think this is a, a fine or an extra fine, um, which is beautifully tuned. It's inked with um, something I got new with a purchase recently, um, and it's a bottle of Mont Blanc Homage to Napoleon the First Blue, which is quite a nice blue. It's like a very... <laughs> I have deets on that. Sorry, please continue while I find my deets, my goss on that. 
Why do you have deets on this very unextraordinary, unremarkable blue? I just keep talking, um, keep yeah, explaining it's, what it's, you're it's doing. Dark blue. It's not that special. It works well in this pen, but for some reason, I think something's wrong with the feed. Um, every time I cap it, it just leaks ink everywhere. Um, but anyway, it's the first time I've inked this pen in absolute ages. The other pen I have inked is my Schaefer Crest. I think it's a reissue from like the 1990s. Um, it's a, it's got a sack in it and it's got like one of those little, it, what it reminds me of is the Pilot Con 50, Con, is it the Con 20? The Con 20, which is the old uh, converter that has like a little sack, like a rubber sack. It's, an it's got a little leaf. Aromatic? It's an yeah. aromatic filler, right? Yeah. Um, that's the Schaefer Crest. It's inked with Marizenathena Sepia. Um, it's got a beautiful, um, I think you call it a cursive italic nib. It's like a broad cursive italic that's been ground. I don't remember by who, but um, I really like this pen. It's not too skinny and it's got that sort of a vintage feel despite not being really vintage. It's just like redesigned vintage. Um and it's one of those more reliable um, bulb vacuum fillers, the vacuum fillers. Aero. Is that what you call it? I, 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 it's aromatic. Yeah, but Because a, vacuum, a vacuumatic one is the one that actually has, like, the plunge, right? But I thought aromatic. Someone back me up here. I think Tom, I, Tom, Tom, Tom. Hang on. Can you hear me? You're very soft. God damn it. Is that better? Much better. Oh, much better. All right, that's better. Cool. Um, it's aerometric. That's the squeezy. Aerometric. I was close. Aerometric. Yeah. Unless I'm also mistaken, but I'm fairly sure it's aerometric. Google. But I thought all those terms were like patented, so I didn't think. Yes, uh, aerometric. Um, I don't know if it's patented, but I've only ever associated it with Parker. Uh, Parker. Exactly. Yeah. So if Same with vacuumatic. Else does it, what do you call it? You know. I just call. Is it? I mean, I do see it referred to as that, but the squeeze converter, that's what we always call Aromatic. Them. It is called. Cool. So, so aromatic is the Parker, um, ah, okay. is the Parker copyright yeah. one, whereas yeah. the aero, the actual filling system is an aerometric filling system. Oh, I see. Okay. Ah, interesting. Aerometric. So now it, Sharon comes with the definitions. <laughs> okay, so my goss about napoleon because i found it the homage to napoleon blue the mont blanc homage to napoleon blue is the same ink as the mont blanc homer greek blue it's just a reissue that under a different surprise name. me at all i don't have the homer greek blue it's just a very it, boring blue and it was it was free it's exact with same. purchase so it, what what's homer blue shouldn't it be really dark like purple no so no. it's homer greek blue Wine Fun. Dark Sea, guys. Wine <laughs> Dark Sea. Hasn't everyone read the Iliad? <laughs> oh, hey, Sebi. He's been chewing on my foot, so here we go. Homer famously couldn't see blue. Why would you make a boring blue? <laughs> we were talking about this just the other week. <laughs> oh, my God. Blue didn't exist for Homer. Wow. <laughs> That's so dumb. They're still debating that. <laughs> Whether he couldn't see blue or he just didn't have well, it's it's that it's that um, culture back then didn't have a word for blue. Exactly. Yeah. Um. I think that still sort of proves the point. So um, the ink came with my 
um, my solitaire, my 80 days around the world um, solitaire pen, which arrived the other week. It's beautiful. Um, but then just as quickly as I held it in my hand, um, it went back to Mont Blanc for a nip swap. Mwah, mwah. So um, I think it's going to so be like why didn't you get the So why didn't you get the 80 days blue ink to match your 80 days pen? I didn't have any. Oh, okay, don't worry. You can get the exact same ink uh, called petrol blue. Is that the 80 days blue? Oh, I already it's, have a bottle of petrol blue, so I don't need another so one. So that is a reissue as well. Oh, goodness. Why did I do this? Fun fact, right? Why can't they reissue some cool inks? It's so dodgy. Well, the, the pe- petrol blue is still on their line. It's not like they're replacing petrol blue with Jules Verne. Anyway. Okay, so that's what we're writing with today. Um, I did some reading on this, guys. Um, I I went through some of my books um, and I did some reading about historical ink filling systems. And I found this little, little passage from Regina Martini's Pens and Pencils, a collector's handbook, which I think really cuts to the quick about um, the problems with ink filling systems. Um, She wrote... The ink filling system has a threefold mission. It has to take up the ink, it has to hold it in the pen, and it has to release it to the point in the right quantity when writing. And this is more complicated than it sounds, apparently. Um, Like getting, first of all, getting the body, such a slim, small body, to hold all that ink, um, getting it to stay in that body, you know, without destroying whatever the materials are and without leaking. And then also getting it to release that ink in a measured way um, so that you can actually write with it and not get a, you know, a puddle in your hands. Um, And the progression from like quill to self-filling fountain pens was like several centuries of innovation, which you can trace now by advertisements and by um, registered patents and by a lot of very um, self-aggrandizing, I would say, like um, (laughs) advertising copy, which uh, I, I really started to get an understanding of why people are obsessed with looking at old pen ads because you really, you really feel the excitement, I guess. Um, like we look, it was their equivalent. It was their equivalent of one of those MacBook launches. Yes. Yes. This is, this is going to change your life. This is what the up to date, the, the in the know gentleman is going to write with. Um, (laughs) man, that new iMac is looking real sexy. (laughs) And every couple of like years, they'd come up with like these new little features to get you to buy the new one. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so quaint and so cute. <laughs> um, so, Tom, um, did you want to be the one to run down on like a quick timeline of development oh, God. modern filling systems? Oh, modern filling. Oh, I mean, I could. So maybe I like could. from like the late 19th century to now. Yeah, so as as I understand, as I understand, this this may be wrong. I'm fairly certain the first, it's been a while since I've read any of these books, the first um, self-filling fountain pen, meaning one that holds ink in the barrel without you needing to um, 
syringe it like um, certain Lamy 2000 cavemen I know. Um, Me? What? <laughs> uh, was what? the uh, Conklin Crescent filler, which, I mean, they, they still make a version of it now and it's such a wacky looking design. It's this little like crescent half moon appearing halfway down the barrel with this little ring. I, I don't know how to like describe this um well now it's improv gimmick, off, off right? my head they returned it's, it recently yeah they returned it recently and it is such a gimmick but it was so revolutionary in the at the time because basically there's this little ring that moves around the barrel and that if you move it around you can get to this little gap that allows you to press down this crescent moon shaped bar and that crescent moon shaped bar then depresses inside a sack which uh obviously compresses the air and when you release it, it will draw ink up the barrel and then hold it there. You can turn that little ring, lock the filling mechanism in place so you don't accidentally uh, squirt any ink out and then you're ready to go. And it's, it's it's fascinating looking at it as like the first iteration of what would then become sort of the way fountain pen, most fountain pens filled for the next 50 years, which is the lever fill. So the Crescent Filler made a comeback or tried to make a comeback, not just with Conklin, oh. um, and Conklin at least had the history yeah. to back it up, but um, ye old good mates at Visconti. Oh, did, did they? I believe they call it the, I think they called it the Millennium Arc, um, Millennium um, range of, it was three limited edition, like $1,000 pens. Yeah, right. $1,000 pens each. But they actually did um, a version of this as well. So what I've realised um, when looking at the very early um, filling, self-filling systems was that they were trying to get around this issue of how to create um, the vacuum within inside the pen, within so as to draw ink from the nib and also to hold it inside the pen. And I, I think the Crescent Filler is this classic example of um, great idea, but you can totally understand why it was replaced by something better. Mm. Like you can understand why they got rid of it. Like it, mm-hmm. the, the way that they m- use the lever outside of the pen so as to create that vacuum um, because they couldn't fit it inside the body of the pen. That's basically why it's outside the pen. And they tried to make it look attractive by, you know, um, having this design element. But it's awkward having this ring on the outside of a pen. And they understandably replaced it very soon after. So uh, um, the Crescent Filler, I think, was released by Conklin in 1901. So I think you're correct in it being one of the very early sack filling systems. Mm. And then Schaefer came up with their lever filler in 1909, so very soon after. And um, for, like, 50 years, what you see is mostly lever fillers. Um, And the lever – maybe you can describe what the lever filler is, Tom. So the lever filler is very simple. It's it's often what – when people think of a vintage fountain pen, they often think of a lever fill. It's the one that will often appear in op shops – it's what Henry Jones in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade uh, squirts in the face of a, uh, oh, there you go, squirts in the face of a Nazi. They are the perfect, perfect weapon for a 1950s schoolchild. They uh, basically, you pull the uh, lever and that's 
instead of the uh, ring. That's what depresses the second side. And then the rest is very similar to how a um, crescent filler works. But I think one of the major contributors as to why that was such a common uh, common refill mechanism was it was relatively cheap and relatively simple to manufacture. And it was, as a result, the filling mechanism on most cheaper uh, everyday pens. So a lot of the ones that we obsess over now and get really excited over, like the vacuumatics and the the button fillers and the um, the pen for men and all the snorkel stuff that Schaefer did, they were all the high-end pens. They weren't necessarily the ones that everyone was buying. The ones that you were getting at school or the one that you just bought to have a pen was often going to be a lever fill fountain pen. And is that just because the lever fillers are easier to produce? That's, yeah. Less, and, less moving parts, I guess. Yeah, like having a having a Parker Vacumatic, obviously I'm a, I'm a huge uh, Parker Vacumatic fan. It's a little bit like, you know, having a um, having a Porsche and having to go to the Porsche dealership in order to get parts. It's If you have a lever fill, anyone is going to be able to service a lever fill if you need it. Um, and if you've used one lever fill, you've used every lever fill fountain pen. Now that you've mentioned the Vacumatic and like the button fillers, um, I still consider those to be like sack filling systems. Let's just get the sack filling systems out of the way first. Um, mm. Because I think when you look at the first part of the 20th, 20th century, there's sort of these two concurrent, um, like competing um, filling systems, like large groups of filling systems. One is like various pistons, um, starting with the Onoto pens from the first decade of the 20th century um, and then moving from like Pelican to Mont Blancs and so on. Um, the piston fillers are maybe lesser known from this period. Um, and I think Aurora did very early piston fillers as well. But then the vast majority, especially when you look at the American, um, the big American brands are these sack fillers, like the, um, the, the button fillers, the vacuumatics, the crescent fillers, the lever fillers and so on. Um, and it's interesting now to see like the how much of these survive. Um, do you have any idea why there's so much um, more of these sack fillers than there are piston fillers? Is it because just like you said, the sack fillers are less uh, expensive to produce than piston fillers in general? Yeah, I'm. I'm honestly not sure. I think it might have been to do with materials as well. I think that would have been a huge part. Like you're talking about the first half of the 20th century, where if we weren't in a world war, we were in an economic depression, and I mean that had measurable impact on the material. Like, say, pencil ferrules were always made out of plastic if there was a war on. Uh, there was no such thing as a gold nib if it was a, during a war. It had to be made out of a different material. That's where I think that's where Pelicans started making, uh, I don't know if it was palladium nibs, but a lot of places were starting to just do steel nibs. So I feel like it might have been to do with the materials shortage. Um, but then at the same time, it could have just been down to good old a uh, familiarity. And if we're talking at that era of uh, American innovation, like we're talking close to the era of the... Uh, of the Henry Ford mentality of, you know, the classic Model T. You, you can have it in any colour you want as long as it's black. They may have just stuck around just because it was sort of the done thing. Yeah, kind of like how um, 
now you have like the Japanese brands sticking to their guns and all using um, converters and mm. the other brands like going in this other direction um, with, you know, pistons and various other interesting more. Well, I guess you'd call them now more interesting filling systems. Um, yeah, two different lines of um, co-evolution. Um, and around the same time, if I'm not mistaken, we also had people sticking to a very old system, which is the eyedropper. Um, and I don't think those ever really completely went out of date, even though it's comparatively um, a less modern innovation, I suppose. Um, and by eyedropper, they're the pens that aren't self-filling, as you said. Um, they do require you to use um, some sort of a bulb or um, I, I don't know what people used to fill their eyedroppers in those days, to be honest. I mean, was it like little pipettes, glass pipettes? I would presume so. I'm honestly not super familiar either. If it's um, that that early on, the uh, the history of fountain pens relatively eludes me. It's, um, eyedroppers terrify me, quite frankly. But eyedroppers, I think, because they are relatively easy to produce and they have survived a lot to the current day, you see a lot of them still. Um, mm. the, the swans um, ooh, or the, the precursor to the swan, maybe swan company um, with a long name, I can't remember, but um, a lot of watermans, early watermans from like the 20s and 30s are also eyedroppers. And because there's no guts to corrode, I think a lot of them still make it onto the secondhand market at very high prices. I think it might be, oh, I can't remember the numbering system with Mont Blanc pens, but I think it's the, it's, if the middle number in say a 149, I think if that's a one, it means it's an eyedropper from memory. So if it's a, if it's a 113 or whatever, it's an eyedropper. I may be wrong on that, but that rings a vague bell. It's also quite popular with um, Urushi pens as well because, uh, again, not that many um, pieces. Uh, it's quite a simplistic design and on a lot of Urushi pens, because of the lack of metal components, it's fairly it's a fairly simple way of getting a large amount of ink into a pen. Very easy to turn. With old eyedroppers, as with modern eyedroppers, you still have that um, that trade-off where the benefit is you get a lot of ink into the body because you can use the whole barrel. There's no need to create that vacuum inside. Um, there's no parts inside of the pen. But then you have the problem, as people like to complain, of burping. You know, because if it's if it's not designed in such a way that um, air can also be drawn into the pen as you're writing it what you get is um, very low pressure inside of the pen and the ink won't come out um, so you have like modern eyedroppers which combine that technology with some sort of a like a piston system that allows air to be released so that it will keep writing and I use Opus 88s, I think, as the modern Japanese eyedropper system. Um, that's what's happening in an Opus 88, by the way. 
if you have one of those. It looks like a vacuum filler, but it's, it's really not. It's an eyedropper that has an air release valve, so it doesn't burp and it doesn't oh, yeah. stop riding. Yeah. Oh, you, you haven't tried one of those, Tom? No, no, I haven't. I've, I've seen them, but I've never uh, had one in the hand. That's a fascinating uh, concept. Yeah, very interesting. I, I remember when I first, when the Opus 88s first came out, we had a conversation with um, Renee. Renee. Renee in New Zealand mm, about mm. what is this Japanese eyedropper thing? Um, and we didn't, I didn't go into like the history of it, but I assume this is a system that they've used for quite a, like quite a long time. And it makes sense because when you have a very large eyedropper, um, it's very easy for it to burp if you don't have some sort of a way of releasing the, the vacuum that's created when you write for a mm. period of time. Um, yeah. So we don't know very much about eyedroppers. They're nice. There's a lot of, <laughs> you know how when you first got into fountain pens, um, you always come across these messages online, like, can you eyedrop at this pen? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That? Yeah. It's- like, can you take out the system and just put an eyedropper, fill it as an eyedropper? And I think, um, was it, maybe it was Stephen Brown who started out that trend. Well, uh, Tom, how many spare rollable going, barrels do you I, sell? <laughs> I, was, uh, I was going to mention, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, there used to be, we used to sell heaps of the um, the rollable barrels because exactly that, because it doesn't have the ink window on the side. You can put that on the fountain pen. You just need to get some like wine glass repairer uh Uh, what do you call it, like plexi solution or whatever, and you just fill up the end of it and then you can fill the entire safari with ink. So permanently stain it, but no, yeah, I I did it. It was very popular though. It was, it was. I think I remember Brad Dowdy posted one and then it just went insane. I think people just like the idea of seeing the ink sloshing around inside the whole barrel. (laughs) Yeah. Very pleasing to look at, like a leveler. I, I guess it's something I have to thank uh, Twisby for is uh, giving people an outlet for that that isn't destroying safaris. <laughs> and, of course, um, on the topic of eyedroppers and how very easy they are to make comparatively, like that's what all the the uh, those Taiwanese and Chinese brands, they do a lot of, um, what are they, like the Moon Man's, um, oh, even Pen BBS does a lot of them, yeah. but they have the same problem. Like, you know, you get, a, you don't have to bother with creating internal filling systems, but um, I think a lot of them still have flow issues if you write with them for a long period of time. That's how they, you get the, I'm going to get the brand wrong, but I think it was the Moon Man that had the double-edged the double-ended pen. Is that the movement or a pen BBS? I think that's a movement, yeah. Yeah, which has the double-ended mm-hmm. um, nib. Two nibs in one. Makes no sense. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that was – I think that's another thing that sort of leads me into the early half of the 20th century is a period that I love because that's another thing that, like, legitimate brands, like, fooled around with. Doing. <laughs> yeah, it's like I love – and. We can go back to like the vacuumatic and all of the absurd filling systems in the first half of the 20th century. It was like people just started going, it's like, oh, you know what? Why not? Let's, let's have the three-in-one shampoo of uh, fountain pens. Well, I'm getting the sense that you really like the vacuumatic, Tom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, so, yeah, it's like um, the definition of over-engineering 
though. <laughs> it's I don't how do how do you even describe it? It's it it was advertised as being um, a fully full television ink supply, by which it meant you could see the ink inside it because most uh, at least Western fountain pens back then they were sack fill, so you weren't able to clearly see your ink level. Uh, instead, it was very visible inside the barrel. But basically, how it works is you unscrew a blind cap at the back, similar to if, if you were screwing a piston. What that reveals is a little uh, vacuum plunger thing, which then depresses a sack inside the top of the pen or a diaphragm, really, at the top of the pen, which then creates a vacuum. And then inside the pen body, God, this is so convoluted. Inside the pen body, there's a little like fountain spout that as you're making the, uh, as you're depressing the diaphragm, it's creating a vacuum and then you release that and then the ink goes through that little spout and fills into the rest of the pen. So it's an, yeah, it's an absurd amount of um, moving parts, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful little mechanism. I, I don't have um, a vacuumatic, but I have this Triumph, um, a Schaefer Triumph vac, I think from the 40s. Is it oh, yeah. like a very similar system? Like well, it's the- also got this plunger thing and it's it's a it's got a translucent body so you can see the ink inside it when it's filled. The sh- the shape of the shape of vacuums when you're not you're not looking at like the touchdown filler or the um or the by extension the snorkel fillers they're much more in line with the the kind of vacuum fillers we have now from like people like Twisby or the Pilot 823. The uh, you unscrew the blind cap, you pull the plunger out, and you push it down. The vacuum that's the beauty of that system is it is so simple. The vacuumatic is far more involved. The vacuumatic is at once a vacuum filler, uh, a what do you call it? A, um, a sort of sort of an aerometric filler, like a, a, a sack filler. It's also a uh, button filler. It's yeah, it's an absurd pen, like but a, I love like it. Like a hybrid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can certainly see outside of, like, when the patent expired, you can see why no one else was in a rush to try it. Are they difficult to um, repair and find replacement parts for these days? No, not at all. And uh, funnily enough, um, was it Hero in China? They made a basically a modern remake of the Parker 51 vacuumatic which was the first instance of the parker 51 was using the vacuumatic filler before they went to the aromatic aromatic filler um and those parts i hear are interchangeable with vintage vacuumatics so even though we still had a good supply of vintage parts we now have apparently a uh, ongoing supply of modern parts as well but um the modern parker 51s the ones that were reissued I think last year those are just are they are they just cartridge fillers? Yeah, I um I looked at them very briefly and then just I I turned away. It's going to upset me. Let me have a look. Um the reissued Parker 51. What is Have you guys actually tried? No, I haven't seen one in person ones? yet. Me neither. I'm keen. I want to get one. I don't know that I want to get one, but I want to see one. Yeah, I I would be intrigued, but I I don't trust anything Parker does anymore, honestly. 
Sorry, Parker. Um, Apple Boom is selling the Parker 51. Identical in silhouette to the old one. See, that's a warning. That's a warning bell. Really? When they're clarifying identical in silhouette, you know nothing is the same. Oh, different is the shape of the nib, the length of the clip, and the closing system. Why would you change the shape of the nib? That nib was fantastic. Yeah, the that's the one nib. That's 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 the fifty-one to me. Is that nib? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that little hooded nib. It's still a hooded nib, but I think it's just a little, yeah, a little different in shape. Come on, what's the filling system? Um, five bucks says cartridge converter. Is it cartridge converter? Yeah. That would what, make sense. What I've never... I, I don't know, but can you find out? Because I've I'm got five bucks on the line. Okay, specifications. Yes, it's cartridge converter. That would I'll, make sense, I'll right? never understand why anyone would need to buy a modern one when the the vintage ones are cheaper than well, the reissue. Like cartridge converter pens, I guess that's why. Oh, I suppose. <laughs> but the Parker 51, like, I can't say I have too many of them, um, but they are tanks. Like, they're literal tanks. They're incredible. That's true. I've come close to buying them um, multiple times at, like, old pen shows. But I'm still holding out for, like, one the one that I want. Like, a colour that I want in the size that I want. Yeah, what's um, do you have one in mind? I want, um, like, the Dove Grey. Oh. But in the large. Okay. Like, not, um, so the, the uh, what do they call it? Like, the... The men's sized? Uh, I can't remember the 51 sizes. I think it might just be full size or the vacuumatics, they'd call it a major, but I don't think that continued mm. for the vacuumatic, uh, for the 51s. Um, I really like the debutante and the junior sizes just because they're ever so slight. Some of them are thinner, but they're ever so slightly shorter, which makes them perfect for a shirt pocket because that's what's killed 51s for me in the past is I've got one that, I love, but it's just too tall for any shirt pocket I own. So it's not just the matter of the clip; it's the actual body of the pen is too. Yeah, it's 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 the it's the body of the pen. Yeah. Have we exhausted the topic of sack filling systems for the moment? Um, I'm I get very confused when I look at old Schaefer um, history because it seems like they have experimented with every single filling system that there is. Um, and looking at old snorkels, especially, um, I, I kind of wonder, like, why did they come up with this? What, what was the purpose? What was the thinking behind the snorkel? Um, do you have any ideas? I, uh, from, what I, uh, from what I remember in my uh, reading, Parker and Schaefer were always kind of at each other's throats. And particularly in the 1930s when Parker was coming out with the, uh, they had a big hit in the Dewar Fold, uh, which was sort of the king of the flat top fountain pens, which for a long time was the style of fountain pens. They'd stolen the, um, they'd stolen the crown from Waterman and the Waterman's Ideal. Um, that was when Schaefer came out with the Schaefer Balance, which was a sort of cigar-shaped or javelin-shaped um, fountain pen so they were the the Chrysler coming in to steal the Ford uh, market and then Parker had a couple of big hits with their filling systems like the button fill and the vacuumatic so Schaefer were sort of and this is kind of what killed Waterman as well they were seen as the fuddy-duddy lever fill pens 
And Parker were like, we don't, we don't make Leverfield pens. In fact, the only Leverfield pen we have is the Parker Junior made for kids. So I think there was a bit of a rush for the next couple of decades where Schaefer was just trying anything they could possibly do to come up with something that would rival Parker in that field. And you just wound up with these absolutely bonkers over-the-top filling systems like the snorkel fill, which still to this day, like I'll find a snorkel fill and I'll have to unscrew it to see that little rod emerge from the front of the nib. <laughs> just like, Who thought that was a good idea? But, you know. William Holden apparently liked it. Does it do anything? Does it does it help you reach that like that last drop? Well, the, well, Sharon might Sharon might love it because it means you don't need to dip the nib in the ink at all. I need to get one myself. One of these <laughs> pens. It's always been a cool thing, but um, I've I've never actually gone own one. Yeah, I've got a um, I've got a pen for men here somewhere. It does sound like you know, um, Schaefer and Parker. They're like. Um, they're like Google and um, an Apple, like mm. in this eternal war mm. <laughs> for the first half of the 20th century. And um, on the other side of the world, you know, like in Europe, um, despite the piston filler, I think, being first, the, the modern piston filler being first um, patented in the US by um, Delarue, um I don't think there was a lot of piston fillers in the US. Like they were making them mainly like in Germany and in the UK. Um, so like a lot of the old companies that we still um, like today, uh, Pelican and Mont Blanc, mm. those introduce their piston fillers like in the twenties and then the thirties. And they've just kept making them mm. um, until now. And it's interesting to see like what, what has survived um, you know, like the sack fillers, we don't have those anymore. Um, they don't really exist except in vintage pens. But, and, and we don't uh, really have the American companies now either. So exactly. <laughs> well, in their original form, um, yeah. they exist in some, some shape. Um, in, in name, in yeah. Yeah, in name. Um, but they really don't have that history um, that's continuous. Um or really ownership of those legacies anymore. Whereas the, you know, the people who were less popular, I guess, um, or less considered less innovative, um, less, you know, less exciting in their own day, they still exist. And we still have piston fillers. Um, and, you know, uh, I think second only to convert a cartridge pens, piston fillers are what we see in those high end pens now. Um, and I, I find it very curious. Like, what, do you have any theories on why that is? Why did sack fillers, plungers, um, the vacuums, why did they really go out of style? I mean, I, I can only presume it's because people generally felt how I feel, which is I do think that the piston fill is the probably best. It's the less ex, least exciting or one of the lesser exciting filling systems, but it's probably the best one. It's not easy to muck up like you can't accidentally pull the lever and squirt someone there's no sack inside that's going to deteriorate of course there is a piston knob that will need lubrication eventually but typically it's sort of a uh, a self-maintaining for the most part filling system and it allows you to get a tremendous amount of ink inside a barrel without needing to waste a lot of space on other components 
so I I think it was sort of as soon as as soon as the um, I think it was sort of the 1920s 1930s when the piston really took hold in Europe. As soon as that happened, it was game over. It was like this is the way it's going to be from now on, and I think it's probably for the best as well. That's interesting because the the fifty ones, the vacuumatics, those mm. are from like the forties and onwards mainly. Yeah, yeah, the forties. I can't remember when the um, aromatic filler started though, because when the fifty one was launched, it was still using the vacuumatic system. Um, I'd, I'd presume it'd be after 1945, 1946, because that's when I think the last vacuumatics were made in Canada in 46 or 47. So it might have been after that that the aromatics started. But that's that's quite unusual because it's it's not a um, it's not just a standard plastic used in that filling system. It is almost like a plexiglass, super super durable. Um, sack they're using so that's that's still parker sort of doing their weird thing and and it, it certainly wasn't it wasn't like the like the pistons that they first made aren't the pistons that we now have in the 2000 for instance like it, it did take a while to develop like it probably was roughly around when the 2000 was launched that the piston was really perfected because those early like i've got a vintage mont blanc and i've had a vintage pelican as well piston fill and the um, the sort of piston, what do you call the end of the piston? The piston stopper, the pl- plunger part. I can't think of the word. But they used to be made of cork. So if they're made of cork, they're going to deteriorate, and then you've got to open it up and you've got to replace it. And they're often telescopic as well, which you've got. You've there are more moving parts than there are in a modern piston. So it was the best idea, but it did still take quite a while to. Uh, Refine it. Refine, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and this is something like a little fact that I didn't realize until I um, I come across it in my research, but cartridges have been around. Well, the very first like re- removable cartridges um, started out like in the late 19th century. Um, I saw that in your show notes and I almost didn't yeah, believe it. <laughs> Made of things like, you know, like pig's bladders with like little stoppers that you can attach inside wow. your pens. It's very, very interesting. But I, I'm pretty sure then they weren't um, like very widespread. But cartridges have become very widespread. And I think perhaps the dominant form of um, reservoir filling systems in a fountain pen since the 1960s. And you can understand why. I mean, we give converters, a, sorry, we give cartridges a lot of flack, but they are super convenient. And I think. The main reason we don't like them so much is because they are quite wasteful, um, especially if you use your pen a lot. You, you go through a lot of cartridges. Or you refill them. That's true. You can refill them. <laughs> but then you have to explain why you have um, a blunt needle syringe in your desk. I get that question a lot because mine actually is in my guest bathroom. I keep a blunt uh, syringe in my guest bathroom. I get a lot of questions. Um, I think as a whole, like if you, I'm a big pro, I'm a big fan of refilling cartridges because I use a lot of pilots. And um, in my opinion, I don't think there is a single good pilot converter out there. 
like none, none of them. Whether not even it's a con twenty, con forty, con fifty, con seventy, they're all terrible. They're all terrible. And so I can get so much less fuss, so much easier to clean and actually more uh, in capacity just by refilling a, a cartridge. Um, and the cartridges are great. Simple. <laughs> I used to really like the cotton 20s um, because they had the so squeezy. much. The squeezy bulbs from Pilot, uh, the squeezy converters, because they had so much volume inside that converter and I would fill, syringe fill those rather than just using a cartridge. I think it was easier to refill than a cartridge and it has more volume than um, the pilot cartridges I, I think. Fairly sure about I that. I think they're about the same. About the same? Okay. Yeah, that's how you get the most ink into like a vanishing point. Yes, it's also the same likewise with Sailor. Refill the cartridge. Just refill the cartridge. And oh, the other thing that... Sailor, Sailor I, converters. <laughs> garbage uh, they're and they're very expensive to, with um wait sailor cartridge or sailor converter cartridge oh. not converter Co converter doesn't fit but the cartridge does how odd <laughs> so that must have been before pilot moved to their it was, um it was a pilot sack sack filler yeah. huh. from which period from no idea Oh. It's got a great nib on it, though. <laughs> but I mean, this this was presumably before they moved to their proprietary um, converter yep. cartridge systems with the very big yes. opening. Yes, because it's because it's a sack. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay, I think we've produced somewhat of an overview. Um, do you have a favourite filling system? Um, both from like the historical period and also modern day pens. Like, why don't we do like a rundown starting with Tom? Uh, I, I think it might actually be if we're talking, like I do love my vacuumatic and that's probably my favorite pen and I do adore it. But I think if I'm talking about my all time favorite filling system, it's probably just a vacuum fill. Like I I think the 823, like when I discovered that that pen existed all those years ago, I just became obsessed. And then I've since become obsessed with vintage Schaefer vacuum fills as well, like the vacuum filled uh, balances. I just love it. And it looks so cool. And it will never not be so fun showing someone one of those pens for the first time and asking them, it's like, how do you think you fill this? And pulling the piston, pulling the, uh, the vacuum rod out. Like, they're brilliant. That's the coolest impact, like just sticking a nib and yeah. then, like, plunging Whoosh. that thing and it goes, having yeah. the ink go up in the opposite direction. That's great. No, that the cool. best. The best. And, uh, oh, who's? Yeah, so, yeah, it's Conid nowadays who make the very biggest, I think, of the vacuum fillers. Um the giraffe, for example. Yeah, they're they're nice. wild. They're they're something else entirely. They're pretty full on those. Okay, how about you, Sharon? Um, I'm actually a big fan of the aromatic, aerometric, whatever you want to call it, um, filling system. It's it's convenient, it's really easy to clean. It's about as close as I'm going to get to uh, not having to syringe a 
cartridge because as everyone now knows I like cartridges um, and I prefer to I prefer to refill a cartridge but I really like the aero, uh, aromatic aerometric uh, filling system just because um, it was very very easy to use it was really hard to get wrong and uh, in the Parker 51 that I've got has worked like a treat I have an aromatic Parker 51 it's been fantastic um, that's probably my favorite Sim- simple is best <laughs> I'm a simple gal so um, simple is best for me but in terms of the one that I use most cartridge converter absolutely I use heaps of cartridge converters the bulk of my pens would be cartridge converters and I see nothing wrong with that I know a lot of people go when when you hit a particular price point you want your filling system to be something fancier than a cartridge converter. I disagree. I think a cartridge converter ensures that your very expensive pen lasts many lifetimes. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, I'm I'm a little mixed on modern vac fillers, to be perfectly honest. I find them to be quite heavy as um, an internal mechanism, just in terms of their weight. Back heavy. They tend to be back heavy. They tend to be back heavy. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. they require Mm -hmm. large pens to – I don't know why, but they're made in only large pens nowadays for some reason. Mini vac. The Twisby mini vac. Yeah, that's the only exception I can think of. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's a small one. It's it's a small one. That's true. Um, But, like, I was – um, showing you my the Triumph vac um, from Schaefer, and this is like a very small vac filler. It's very slim. It's very slender, and the vacuum system. I'm assuming the reservoir isn't very large, but I don't find it to be very heavy um, to hold. And I really like this um, vac system, uh, and I wish they'd do more of it in like smaller pens these days. But now. Mostly you find it in like the Visconti, the very large bodied, very showy demonstrators, Mm. which Mm. is understandable. You know, you want a big pen to take advantage of the fact that you can put a a whole heap of ink into it using that vac system. Um, Have you seen that Visconti's got the new, they've replaced the rods in their vac fillers. They're now clear rods. Is that is that good? Is that a no? I think issue? it just breaks easier. <laughs> You've replaced a metal metal rod with a plastic one. Well, it would be lighter than now, I guess. Potentially, kind of yeah. Change- mm. yeah. But the rod isn't what gives it the weight. It's all of the mm. bit at the top at the knob that one of that's my f- weighing it down. Yeah, the the very first Visconti I I bought was. Their, one of their plunger like vac fillers and I just did not like it it took me ages to figure out how it worked I kept forgetting to unscrew the back to like release the the air when it was writing and I just find them a little bit too fussy for me um just for daily use the vac fillers and I I can understand you know the people who say this is the 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 system to get the most amount of ink into my pen body, but I've never had an issue with um, running out of ink in the middle of a sentence. I guess I don't write enough for that to happen to me, or I have too many inks, uh, too many pens inked at the same time. You know, if I run out, I just swap it to a different pen. Um, And that's why for just plain convenience, 
and their ubiquity. I really like cartridge converters. Um, I like the fact that you can just clean them out without um, having to worry so much about it degrading the inside. You know, you can just replace a cartridge or a converter very, very cheaply. Um, I actually go one step further. I regularly, well, not regularly, every couple of years, I do clean out the inside of my converters and I lubricate them with silicone grease, the the little pistons, just to make them last a little bit longer if they've been sticking. Um, but you don't need to do that. You can just, you know, buy a new converter um, and it's going to cost you less than, you know, 10 bucks unless it's Lamy or Sailor. <laughs> um, and I like the trend um, in Japanese pens where even very expensive pens come with cartridge converter filling systems. Like Sharon, I don't really understand that prejudice against um, converter cartridge pens. Um, I, I don't I don't have that expectation where you go above a certain price range and you really expect like an intricate system. And I think for most fountain pen users, you can understand why cartridges are nowadays the most widely used filling system. Um, I know that a lot of us who really, really get into fountain pens, we enjoy um, looking at the variety of filling mechanisms. And like a lot of people who are technically like people who have engineering and science backgrounds, they love looking at the mechanisms. And that's why um, demonstrators are so popular. But for everyday people who just getting into fountain pens, cartridges are just such a um, such a l- easy gateway, you know, to get into pens. You don't have to worry about buying a bottle of ink. You don't have to learn how to fill it. You can just, you know, it's just take it out, replace it. Um, and you can, you know, take the learning curve and really get into all these different systems. But cartridges is just, I think it really popularizes and it's kept patent pens alive um, by how easy it is. Are you ever terrified? I don't know if this has ever happened. Are you ever terrified that a company is going to discontinue their cartridges or going to go out of business and then you can't use the pen anymore? Um, or are you confident? To, I've had that happen to one of my DuPonts. Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, my... The Montepanasi? Yeah, I think... It, yeah. Is it, no, the lady, I think. It's either the Lady or the Montparnasse. I think they use the same system, but that they no longer make that converter, and those cartridges are also discontinued. It's very, um, it's different to their other cartridges and their converters. So, um, I, how did I end up getting a box of those cartridges? I think, I think um, Julian at Penultimate he found a box like in their storeroom. And he just gave it to me because they were no longer even listed um, in their store because they were just so old. I just sucked the ink out of them and I just keep reusing those cartridges because they're the only ones that will fit those pens nowadays. Yeah, but those are the exception, I think. Most converters, now that we've gone on to like international standard, most Mm. cartridges and converters are interchangeable between brands or at least Mm. most cartridges are. And I think that's a great, that's a great idea. I, I hate the idea of only be able to use a certain brand of ink in a certain brand of pen. Um, you're just really closing the size of the market 
the potential market when you do that? Yeah, I think I do. I think I do understand. Um, like this, this would be my theory: is that if you can be almost certain that only your ink is going in your pen, you can be certain that if something goes wrong, it's your fault. Whilst if you're if a customer's using, you know, I don't know, private reserve in a Lamy two thousand, and the pilot reserve uh, the the uh, private reserve ruins it. Who's who's it? Yeah, I can understand why they might do proprietary, but. Yeah, you can understand that argument. But nowadays, I don't think most people, well, a few people really claim that warranty now. I think- uh, yeah, I think it's fundamentally changing. In the past five, ten years, like, yeah. Yeah, and actually this is one of the questions that I had noted down. Um, I think the, the whole s- the economy around, you know, what is viable as a filling system um, – or viable as a proprietary system, it changes fundamentally when, like, the market shrinks. So, um, you know, from the 30s and 40s when a lot of people were using fountain pens to now when, you know, ballpoints, gel inks, disposable pens are the majority of the market and fountain pens are more niche, when less people are using fountain pens, what does that mean for, you know, what is viable in this, the market as a whole. I, I think that's what put pressure on fountain pens to move towards, you know, cartridges, which um, have less of a learning curve, are easier to replace, don't need, you know, the back end to be learned in how to repair and replace um, fountain pens. I think that's part of the pressure that creates that shift. Um, and probably the same pressure, um, the reducing size of the market is also what, you know, led to the move towards standardizing cartridge and converter shapes. That would make sense to me as well. So are there any companies these days that you think are doing something interesting um, in terms of innovation in their filling systems? Because we really have seen a slowdown, I think, from the the heydays of the self-filling fountain pen to now when it's mainly just cartridge converter on one end and then some piston fillers on the other. The The other systems are few and far between and very few companies know how to make them anymore. Um, mm. But do you, do you have any like notable companies that you think are actually making an effort? I don't know that many are making an effort in the innovation space, but there are companies out there that are trying to keep a variety of um filling systems still alive. So the ones that actually come to mind are Pen BBS, mm-hmm. um, Twisby to an extent, uh, and I have Visconti on my mind, but I wouldn't give them that kudos. Mm. <laughs> I well, think that surprises me. Sorry, go ahead, Tom. The only the only company I can think of that's really innovating is Conid, but their innovation was quite a few years ago now. I honestly don't think innovation is necessarily where the future is with fountain pens. I think the day of innovation is kind of done with fountain pens. We need to start working on them. I I, I think there's still a lot of refinement to be done with pistons. I think pistons, like the mechanisms, will be able to get smaller. I think we'll be able to get more ink in barrels. I think that's the refinement of the systems we already have is what I see coming, if anything at all. I think I agree with you about pistons i think 
there, I think there's room for experimenting with new materials, you know, that's as um, material science improves, I think there's always ways to make pistons, you know, lighter, stronger, um, more robust, um, cheaper and easier to replace. I think that's probably where innovation could be heading. Um, But then that has to be concurrent with um, using materials that will withstand um, ink. So that's always, I think, the the other factor that you have to consider when you're looking at the inside of a, of a system, because ink development is also very, very slow. You know, not much happens. Um, and you're always limited by the fact that you have to work with materials that won't react with ink or become corroded by ink. Um, so those are things I think probably pen companies do consider, but I don't think that there is any pressure for them to really improve or, even make those innovation um, to make those changes. I mean, Tom, you were saying Lamy has barely changed their piston filler, the the Lamy 2000 in 50 years, Mm. 60, almost 60 years Mm. Mm. um, with, you know, minor little tweaks perhaps in terms of the material that their pistons are made of. Um, I don't think Lamy is in any it's not really in their headspace, you know, to think about improving this. Maybe yeah. if something if, if something um, comes along that will make it much cheaper to produce these pistons, maybe they'll take that on board. But I don't know that they do a lot of R and D in this space. I don't. I don't think that's where that company is um, investing their time and their energies. Yeah, I think the only thing that could potentially improve with the two thousand, and this is true of any piston is just that the piston itself, when it's closed, takes up less space in the barrel. I think Lamy have done it, like the 2000s piston, I don't, its ink capacity wouldn't be as high as an 8-tooth, I can't imagine it being as high as a um, M800 from Pelican, but they've got the, like, it's it's how I would do it, is it, you come up with something that is so close to being as good as you can make it at the time, why bother changing it? And then it's, I, um, I heard a quote recently that I've been thinking about a lot, which is a cup is only made once, but you clean the cup a thousand times. It's service and being able to uh, keep something going is almost far more important in, than just how you can make it. So it's like being able to make something that will be repairable for the next 50, 60, 70, 80 years, I think is the real thing that should be focused on. So not what Visconti is probably doing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's difficult because you can't necessarily, like Visconti's market share would be very small in comparison. They're not selling they're not selling pens to a large amount of people. What they're doing is they're trying to capture an audience and recapture that audience time and time and time again. So their business model, in a sense, it requires that kind of innovation. Yeah. Yeah, what I don't particularly like is how their innovation often comes at the expense of the person who bought their item, you know, in the past. Yes. I don't think they have that infrastructure um, to really service their pens, their older pens. Yeah. Which means that if you're buying something now that is very, you know, very unique, very innovative, very... um, 
was it was it really innovative if it's like going backwards but well, um, was it the uh, was it the van gogh that had the corroding uh, cat clutch i think it was the I think it was the Van Gogh. I never had one either, but there was sort of no. It was there was one Visconti model which was notorious for having a um, very easily corroded cap clutch that needed to be replaced. And yeah, you're exactly right. It's it's a, a bit of a catch twenty two they've caught themselves in. We are, I think, in the era of refinement, and I don't think um, I don't think converters and cartridges will be um, displaced. You know, as the dominant system anytime soon i think they're just way too popular and cheap mainly i think they're you know they're cheap to produce cheap to replace as long as there are people like me who don't see them as a deterrent to buying you know very expensive fountain pens i think you'll see more and more of them in more expensive fountain pens um and i think that's probably a trend that i i have no problems with seeing more of um, well, as much as I certain, do occasionally like piston fillers. Certain companies such as, again, Pilot, I, I'm not being paid by Pilot. Um, <laughs> Pilot they, just love their cartridge converters. Well, I'm really not being paid by Pilot, but Pilot, if you'd like to pay me, uh, please get in contact. Um, Pilot are doing that refinement process that you're mentioning. So they have uh, refined. They're, they're refining the converters, but in the opposite direction. Yeah, they're getting worse. <laughs> well, arguably the new Con 70 is better than the old Con 70. Okay. So the old Con 70 was really hard. Like the push button was really, really tough, mm-hmm. whereas the new one's much easier to push. Oh. As an example, notice. it's not any. Um, it's not any easier Easy to, to clean. clean. Yeah. No, not any easier to clean, but it is easier to actually fill, as an example. So they are they are refining. They are looking at ways of doing things better. I mean, the Con 40 was a flop, so I look forward to the day when they bring back the Con 50, um, but maybe with those three little balls inside instead of the big agitator that the Con 50 had. Actually, you do – that is one good thing about converters as well, that you can – you know, make these refinements without having to get rid of your pen. You know, the, yes. you, you know, these little tweaks are possible, but you can still use the pens that you initially bought without having to completely buy a new pen with that innovation or that refinement. Um, yeah, I don't know. We just like converters, guys. <laughs> I don't even like converters that much. I like cartridges. <laughs> I, I'm fine with my converters. Most of my DuPonts I just use with converters. And I think they're um, my DuPonts, my Graf and Fabergastels, I only really use them with converters. I don't like cartridges. Oh, man, I just I can't stand having inky fingers because then they, it doesn't wash off for days. And I put this as a Q&A, I think, a couple of years ago. I said, what's the best way to get ink off your fingers? There so, is none. It still stains. You can be washing your hands back and forth, back and forth, and the ink will still stain. So I can't stand that. No, the best thing I think that's ever happened with inky fingers, I was repairing a fella's 2000 that was just chock full of um, red ink. And, of course, I'm opening it up and it gets all over my hands. Anyway, later I um, I go on lunch and as part of my lunch I go down to buy some, like, records at JB Hi-Fi and, you know, JB Hi-Fi quite notoriously, like, checks your bags every time you go in and every time you go out. And I hand, open my bag to show the guy so he can see the receipt and he grabs my wrist and he's like, are you okay? He's, like, looking at my hands and they're absolutely soaked in blood red ink. 
And I'm like, oh yeah, um, I'm fine. It's just, it's just panic. He's like, oh, oh, okay, okay, good, okay, you can go. <laughs> I walked out of the Wi-Fi. Last question um, on this topic: If you could, no, like physics aside, if you could come up with um, a filling system with all the best features that you really value in a fountain pen, what would it look like? I mean, do you want the ability to like not get your fingers? Um, dirty? Self-syringing cartridge. <laughs> Self-syringing cartridge. Actually, that does make sense. <laughs> like, how does that work? I don't know, but someone make me one. <laughs> so I don't have to keep blood needles around. I think what that would require is for your ink to come in a different format, like something that, like an ink bottle that automatically attaches to a cartridge and allows you to like squeeze ink into the cartridge from the ink, like a um, a blood bag of ink <laughs> <laughs> attaches. <laughs> oh my god! We should do that. You should absolutely invent something like that. Wasn't wasn't there a wasn't there a fountain pen ink that was coming in like blood sachet looking things for a while? Yeah, I remember that. I don't remember yeah. the company. God, that's um how about you, Tom? I I'm just trying to think. I don't know. I don't know how I can come up with an answer that isn't just like, uh, I would really love a um a, something that looks like a park of vacuumatic but has a an actual vacuum fill or something like that. I don't know what it'd look like. I'd have to be able to see the ink inside, though. I love that. Not necessarily full transparent, but if I can see the ink inside and I'm I'm screwing something at the end of the pen, I'm a happy man. I think my mind is too limited by what is like, physically feasible. What I'd like is a converter that was able to like hold more ink. I mean, mm. that's the best... Um, mixture of features that I want. I want the ease of being able to take a converter out um, and to clean it separate to the pen. But I don't like the fact that a converter only holds so much ink because the actual piston for turning the converter takes up so much space inside the pen. So maybe, let me think about this. Maybe what I want is like a converter where the turning thing is detachable. So you you know what I mean? Like you could take it off as soon as you filled it. So the actual ink uh, yeah, 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 yeah. was the length of the pen itself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's neat. That's a neat idea. I don't know. I'm just throwing ideas out there. I, I, I don't know if that's like possible to make, but I feel like I, a, I, I can even. One, yeah, I think that's I, one way of being able to make a like a longer converter, like yeah. a converter with a longer reservoir to hold more ink. I th- I think you've given me the idea into what I'd actually want. I mm-hmm. want a vacuum filler that's easier to clean, one that doesn't take two hours to clean. Like whether it was the it was something to do with the filling system as well, or whether it was like the material of the pen, like the inside is weirdly ink repellent that it just will clean out with no problem. But yeah, I mean, changing I think ink it just in an eight two three man hell. I think it just needs to be a back filler that you can unscrew the top part of fairly easily. So you can just flush the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, maybe, maybe. Mm. But you can take apart an A23. Yeah, you can. But like we're talking, we're talking theoretics. Like I I don't want to have to do that. (laughs) 
like if it was designed to be um if the neck was designed to be opened up routinely for cleaning purposes well that would be probably the best yeah everyone gives twisby like uh props for being so easily easy to disassemble the 2000 you can disassemble easier than that you don't need a wrench for that (laughs) unless you're sharon where she dissembles it so often that she loses parts (laughs) well that clutch ring that is that is yeah lots of people lose that oh yeah no that's borderline triggering for me sharon (laughs) speaking of like um parts that get lost um have you seen the the new platinum um uh, retractable pen i can't even remember what it's called now oh god yeah yes the curidas have you seen one of those tom not in person they look horrendous though oh it's terrible and filling it causes you to lose parts like i filled it once and i think i've already lost a part i don't think it's working as it should already Oh, platinum. It's just, yeah, just going backwards. Yeah. I, they really hurt my feelings, those guys. Like, oh, no. <laughs> they do some really wild things. Like, I, I, I must be the only person on planet Earth that loves the gathered 3776, the, like, ribbed for her pleasure platinum pen. <laughs> but, like, then they do stuff like that, the curadas or what? I don't know. I don't know. But the, I, I'm also, um, I'm starting to get turned off with the 3776. Like, you remember how the 3776, it was no. like on everyone's list as one of the best entry um, point gold. Still is. And like under $150. Well, it's no longer under $150. I don't think even the entry point, um, like the, gen, the no, entry it's about level. No, 180 resin, now. Yeah, and their higher end, higher end limited edition um, plastic three seven seven sixes. They're now like I think three hundred, four hundred dollars. No, well the one that I liked, um, which uh, Tom and I were in store at Bookbinders last week, and I pointed it out and I said I want that pen. Mm-hmm. Um, the shoe in three seven seven six shoe in uh, limited edition seven hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, but that's Gosh. Australia. <laughs> that's ridiculous. It's though. still about 650 Gosh. everywhere else. Yeah, yeah. That's insane. And I'm it's a- just plastic. It's it's just plastic. I also oh. find them, like, it's... They're a strange gold nib as well because they are so stiff. I love mm. it. And they're not... I, I do too. Like, I'm not saying that is a bad thing, but, like, when you say they're a great entry-level gold nib... They're so not representative of what most gold mm, nibs are like. A gold nib is, yeah. Like I remember that when I got a, um, I got a vintage Schaefer, and that was one of the first gold nibs I got, and it was as tough as a nail. Like I loved it. I grew to love it, I should say. But when you're new to fountain pens and you hear about gold nibs, the one thing that everyone says is, "Oh, they're so soft. They're so flexy," and you don't know any better at that point. Mm. Oh, okay. So I'm I'm on Nibs right now, and I know Nibs is relatively expensive place to buy platinums, but like the entry level, the Borgonias, the Chartres Blue, um, they're 176 USD. So yeah, we're we're way above 150 dollars at this point. 
Well, I, re- I remember I got my Begonia for, I think, $110 board. I remember selling a 3776 new for 90 mm. How long ago was And that, that wasn't that many years ago. Yeah. It was maybe three years ago. I think we do like to say that um, Sailor is getting too big for their breaches, like with their price increases, but Platinum is, is also no. way up there. Sailor's next level. Yeah. Sailor is next level in terms of their pricing. It's just, it's bonkers. But like I a pro gear, yeah. but like a pro gear um, regular size is comparable in price now to a three seven seven six. I think that two hundred bucks. Yeah, two hundred Australian, something like that. No, <gasps> no, ridiculous. Yeah. Are ridiculous. they still that price domestic in Japan, or are they increasing there too? Increasing. Increasing mm. across the board. Yeah. Well, at least there was like not. a there was an across the board increase. I think late last year or or early this year, um, for for Sailor, mm. and probably for Platinum as well. I don't know. Everyone's increasing their prices. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Tom. Um, this was really, really educational um, and interesting conversation to have. I think I learned a lot of stuff. It's a little bit sad in some ways to think about all these filling systems that um that have risen and just most of them have fallen by the wayside but most of them deserve to fall let's be honest (laughs) but i can also understand like people who like the romance of fountain pens sometimes the inconvenience or the um the unnecessary complexity is part of what makes them so lovable yeah that's that's certainly the appeal for me (laughs) yeah and we can say that, I guess, about fountain pens in general. Yeah, yeah. A little bit too complex. Like it's, let's be honest what about what we're. Do. Let's be honest about what we're doing here, guys. Like. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Sharon, as well. Thank you, Rex. Let's stop. Yeah, let's finish with our recommendations. How about you, Sharon? What's your recommendation of the week? Um. So I am reliving the early two thousands, late two thousands. Yeah, before 2010, um, I am watching a show called Leverage or Leverage, if you prefer, on Amazon Prime TV. So if you guys like a good heist TV show, and I'm sure lots of people have already seen this, but um, it's a heist TV show. It's Ocean's Eleven condensed into TV show, or it's like the US version of Hustle. And Hustle is one of my favorite TV shows. I think Hustle's better than Leverage. Um, Leverage? Leverage? Leverage. What do you say? Leverage. I say Leverage. leverage. I say Leverage, but I've heard people say Leverage before. I think that's American. Mm. But um, So I would recommend Hustle as a first stop, but Leverage I'm quite enjoying at the moment. I just think Hustle is a lot more lighthearted and the pacing is better. Was Hustle made yeah. by the um, Life on Mars guys? I don't know. It's a UK TV show. Um, eight seasons. Eight seasons. and It, it outstayed its finished. welcome at the end. Hustle oh, I, still th- I still think it was pretty good. I liked Hustle. Even when they changed casts, I liked Hustle. Um, as a whole, uh, I really like a good heist TV show. It's um, Especially if you can get an episode a whole heist done in one episode, which is what they do a lot of the time. Um, in Leverage so far, that from what I've seen, some of the uh, endings are a little bit rushed in some of the episodes, but 
as a whole very enjoyable. And I like this concept of, you know, a ragtag theme of a team of thieves all living together in one apartment. It's just that concept really gets to me. Huh. Did you see, like, there's a bunch of leverage news um, recently. So there's a, there's a revival or a reboot. Um, I heard about that, coming. yes. Yes. Um, but also, like, a cast um, reunion table read um, I saw as well for leverage. I, mm. I like leverage. It's It's very wholesome you know yeah. one of those early eat the rich shows <laughs> yes. I've never heard of it. it's oh good. it's it's great it's, it's good. great yeah, right. and, and one of the most popular threesomes on ao3 is leverage i am um, just looked it up as well um the creator of hustle was one of the co-creators of life on mars that's a show i've got to watch again uh, yeah i'll have to pick up hustle now too i loved hustle I loved, loved Hustle. Cannot say enough good things about Hustle. And oh. I think it's actually aged very well as well. Yeah, right. Like a lot of cool. TV shows don't age that well. Hustle mm. has. Yeah. Where did you watch that? Hustle. Leverage. Leverage is on Amazon Prime. Okay. How about you, Tom? What's your rec? Uh, my rec is a movie. It's a 1987 movie by John Sayles. It's Mate One. Spelt M A T E W A N. It's the film debut of Chris Cooper, also stars James L. Jones and David Strathairn. It's about a coal miners' strike in Matewan, which is a small town in West Virginia, which notoriously led to a bloody battle known as the Matewan Massacre or the uh, Battle of Matewan. It's American cinema, doesn't have too many good examples of union movies or labor movies. Um, and it is certainly certainly one of the finest. It plays out like a uh, sort of a high noon, a, um, a shootout western, um, but it's it's brilliant and it's a un- underrepresented period in American history. Interesting. I've never heard of it before. Um, no. Where did you watch it? Is it on DVD? Uh, it was recently released by the um, Criterion Collection on DVD and Blu-ray, and their restoration of it is just astounding it's really really gorgeous my recommendation is also a tv show i don't know what it was that induced me to subscribe um to stan stan is like the australian streaming platform for a lot of hbo um and nbc shows i think i got it several years ago and i rarely use it but for some reason i've just kept it you know like subscriptions you just get to cancel it and um a couple of months ago i was thinking maybe i should cancel my stand subscription because i haven't been using it but as i was getting ready to you know click on cancel subscription a show came on that i really really wanted to watch and it was only available on stan and it's rutherford falls i don't know if either of you have heard about this so rutherford falls it's it's a new nbc peacock peacock is the nbc um, streaming platform, I think, in the US. It's but it's um, it's created by it's co-created by Michael Schur, who is the like the showrunner behind like The Good Place, Parks and Rec, um, one of the creators and the writers in the American Office as well. So a really really popular sitcom and comedy uh, writer creator. 
Rutherford Falls is his new show, um, and it's only streaming on Peacock in the US and in Stan in Australia. It fits into this conversation, I think, it's very current now about uh, reparations, about um, the rights of Indigenous people. It's dealing with these topics in a very funny and very heartfelt and very empathetic way. So it's a story about this small American town in, um, I don't remember what state it is, but it's like typical American small town um, founded like in the 1700s or earlier um, by this man called Rutherford, who gave his name to the town. And it has all this mystique about um, how that came about and the deal that he made with the local local Native American tribes. And his modern descendants, his current descendants, they're this big family, you know, um, with a lot of pride in the role that their ancestor had in the building of the nation and the town. And um, it's about the strife and the local um, tensions that are built up when um, a lot of people want to tear down or move the statue of Nathan Rutherford, who founded the town, and his great 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 whatever grandson is like, no, you can't. This is my history, you know, um, my identity that's built up in this statue. How dare you change or erase my history by moving this statue? Um, it's about the tension between him and his best friend Regan who is Native American um, and just those two communities um, trying to live together and um, work out their issues of pride um, their ownership of their own histories and you know what it means in the modern context of America Um, but all dealt with like really really smartly and it's really really funny Um, it's one of the shows I think now with the largest native um, casts and also native um, writer rooms so I think the writer room is like half female and half Native American um, which is very very unusual and for me the highlight of this show is a role played by Michael Gray Eyes. Michael Gray Eyes is a very famous I think um, Canadian uh, Plains Cree actor He's been in a lot of like movies um, recently with um, native characters, but this is the first time I've ever seen him do comedy, and he's so good. Um, like really dry, um, sardonic humor, but also like straight up humor as well. Um, yeah, I, I can't say enough good things about it. I think I have to like kind of I have to talk it up because a lot of people in Australia just can't. There's no access to it except on Stan. But if you have a Stan subscription, definitely go and watch it. I I binged all of Rutherford Falls in like two days. It's 11 episodes, I think. It's only got one season now. Um, if you don't have a Stan subscription, I don't know that I'd say that you should, you know, buy one just for this show. But if you do have one, go and watch it immediately. I think get you'll the love trial. It. You can get a trial. Oh, yeah. Okay. Get a trial stamp subscription just for Rutherford Falls. Go and watch it. So thank you both um, for joining me this episode. Thanks, Di. 
Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenipsession.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto Apple Podcasts, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenipsection at gmail.com. You can also comment on us on the Nip Section Facebook page or at the Nip Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nip Section is the official podcast of Fountain Pens Oceania. Our producers this episode were Sharon Zah and Diana Dye. Recording and editing was done by Diana Dye. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith with artwork.